Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 294, and I had a conversation with Deb. This conversation took place over a couple different days. There was a ton of information, and I wove it all together for you here. This episode comes with a trigger warning. Uh, We talk about child abuse, child sexual abuse, unbelievable practices by people of authority toward those who were powerless to do anything about it. I also want to say, uh, if any of you are struggling and need help, if you are in a situation where you aren't sure where to turn, uh, please contact rain.org, R-A-I-N-N, rain.org. You can also contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678. Those two places are great. If you are listening to this outside of the United States, there's a global hotline and helpline directory. It's uh, Child Helpline International, childhelplineinternational.org. There's also a website, icmec.org. That is a portal that has every country listed uh, that has places to report abuse and sexual trafficking and sexual abuse and all that kind of stuff. So I just want to make sure those phone numbers got out there. I think Deb is an extraordinary woman. She's certainly a survivor. And her telling this story, I think, enables others to be able to feel emboldened to speak out and 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 hopefully get help or tell their stories. I just think light begets light. She was raised in the Ingleside United Methodist Church. Pastor, i put quotes around that, Lou Hinnendale. And Lou eventually was to be thrown from the Methodists when it was found that his practices were horrendous. And he packed everybody up and went to Vashon Island, Washington, where he founded the Wesleyan Community Church. And things just went from bad to worse, really. I don't know. I mean, is there a bad to worse when everything is the worst? I'm not sure. So, Deb tells her story here, and it's it's incredible. It's always tough to know how to segue from that intense of a (laughs) description to go into the rest of the stuff, but I mean, I don't know. The world is just such a crazy place. It's hard, you know. It's a tough, I say it all the time, it's a tough planet. I coped this week by rewatching Schitt's Creek. <laughs> I gotta say, that really, it puts you in a much better mood. It just gives you all the sticky, wonderful feelings in your gooey places, you know. And I needed that this week. I don't know, there's just something in the air. Obviously, a lot of people are sick. It's terrible and terrifying. And uh, But besides that, there's just, I don't know, maybe it's the beginning of the year thing. I'm not really sure, but I'm hoping that stronger footing is coming because it all feels very dazed out there and in here. Let's get on to the usual suspects. Hey Human can be found on social media under Hey Human Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. My personal social media is Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
you can email me susan at heyhumanpodcast.com i answer every email as fast as i can and i'm delighted when i get them so please do say hello rate and review and subscribe to hey human on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you want to know more about me and other things i do besides the podcast go to susanruth.com and you can even sign up for a mailing list there but that website susanruth.com has a lot of information about my art and music and all the other things that i do in life and interviews with me actually people interviewing me so it's kind of fun uh what else go to heyhumanpodcast.com and you will find the links page i put links for every episode on the links page every guest has their own section where you can go deep diving on articles and books and conversations that i've had on the show with people and it's really great and i try to be really thorough with it uh, this episode is a little different because it's such a personal story so there's not going to be as many links but they're still going to be on there so check it out uh there's also on heyhumanpodcast.com a contribute page if you like what you hear and you want to support hey human monetarily please do so through the contribute button it really helps keeps the podcast ad free i do all of this by myself and uh, it helps it helps keep it going you know what i mean lima bean okay i think that is everything that i wanted to cover as far as the usual suspects a lot of great new episodes coming up i'm excited for you to hear this one is a doozy and i'm just I, I said it before i'm just really honored that deb shared her story with me and with all of you and take care be well be kind uh and if you can hear my voice know i'm thinking of you and i love you and i appreciate you and uh, you know keep going all right here we go hi deb welcome to hey human Hey, God, I'm so excited to be here talking to you. Oh, I'm glad. Yay. Such a fan of your podcast. That's very kind. Thank you. It's so good. Oh, thank you. Well, welcome. Thank you. I've been following your Instagram for a while now. Is it Let's Talk Cults? That's, that's the Instagram, right? That's it. Yeah. Clearly, you were raised up in a cult. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you are now, as an adult, out of the cult. Correct. And you are making waves in some cases, talking about your experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go back, though, to the beginning. Okay. Uh, let's talk about childhood. Tell me about that. Where did you grow up and what was family life? Um, so I grew up in a small town in Illinois called Crystal Lake. It's like, a, I think it's about 40 to 50 miles northwest of Chicago. So it's kind of a bedroom community. Um, and um, my family was was really close. My um, we lived near grandparents, aunts, uncles on both sides of the family. Um, we spent holidays together, birthdays together. So it was like this this childhood that I felt um, I just felt happy. I felt safe. I felt loved. I felt a part of something. I mean, families all have their 
their quirks and their, um, you know, their ups and downs. But for the most part, we were pretty tight on both sides. Like we were really tight with my mom's family and they were farmers. They lived on a farm in a town called Woodstock. Um, and my dad's parents were kind of um, a little more um, kind of up. What's the term? I don't want to be derogatory, but they were a little more conserved, conservative. Um, my grandpa owned a business in Crystal Lake and they were pretty well known um, among their peers in the community. So I had this kind of polar opposite of, of um, family life. And I love going between the two. I love going back and forth between the two and, and in being around those people who cared about us and loved us. So um, that was my early childhood. And um, so my father was, um, he was a Marine and we were stationed in Hawaii when I was probably about four years old. And so we, we had that sort of nomadic um, early, you know, Marine brat kind of lifestyle where also in that community, and especially during Vietnam, I think, Families were really close. So I felt like I had sort of an extended family on base as a child because I was always, I couldn't, I couldn't get away with anything. <laughs> I was always being watched, always being cared for, um, part of a community. So I had that sort of, my whole early childhood, I felt safe and protected and cared for and loved and had these people around me who made me feel um, a part of something bigger than myself. And I was always aware of that as a kid. I, I, I ate that up. I just loved it. Was it a religious family or just, uh, just close knit? Close knit. I mean, both sides, my, my dad's parents, my dad's mom was Catholic and they used to joke and say that, um, she was like second only to the Pope or something like that. And I never understood that as a kid, my mom's mother was Methodist and she was very, involved in the church and, and um, you know, she'd listen to Billy Graham and, you know, we'd have to pray before meals. So she, they did all this, but it wasn't, it wasn't shoved down our throats and it wasn't a part of our lives because my parents, the only times we went to church would be like Easter or Christmas, you know, for the obligatory, you know, show up and here I am. And <laughs> just to was, remind God you exist. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> sure. Like as a family, like my, my nuclear family, we were never religious. There wasn't any talk of, of God or Jesus or even praying or anything like that in the house. And I remember one time finding a Bible and I was sitting and reading it. And my dad's like, what are you reading that thing for? <laughs> Here, read this. And he handed me Don Quixote. <laughs> oh, that's a great book though. Like he's, not, he's not wrong. They're both great I know, books. But. I know, right? <laughs> um. So, I mean, it was an, it was an easy kind of, I mean, looking back to, I look at myself and, and I think I wasn't a smart kid. I wasn't a bright kid. Like I wasn't, um, I didn't pay attention to things that I, that my friends were paying attention to. So I kind of wonder, um, I wonder a little bit about my naivety as a kid, even like at, at 10, I couldn't count to 20. <laughs> Just these really strange things that my friends could do, but I didn't care. I was like, you know, my ignorance was my, was my bliss. Like, I didn't care if I could count. I didn't care if I wanted clothes like the other kids. So did your parents not notice those sorts of, I mean, that seems like uh, a 
precursor or a red, uh, not a red flag, that sounds negative, but an indication that you had a learning disability. And, you know, right. that's something that should be addressed by a family for sure. Well, you would think so. My parents, so this was, you know, the 60s. I was born in 62. And it, they weren't, they weren't helicopter parents by any means, and they weren't invested in our day-to-day lives. They, my parents were cocktailers. Um, they partied a lot. We, they would load us in the car. We'd go to a friend's house. They'd throw us in the basement, and they would party till two in the morning. Isn't that crazy? And that back then, that and then your parents would just get shit faced and drive you home, and that was normal. I remember one time driving home through Crystal Lake and there's this really kind of windy road through this, this neighborhood, this really quiet kind of upscale neighborhood. And my dad was weaving back and forth, honking the horn, like yelling out his window at people. And we're in the back just laughing, thinking, wow, this is great. Our dad's so much fun. <laughs> in the back of the station wagon. So yeah. funny. I, it's horrifying, of course, now, but just the idea of it is so straight out of a movie or a television show that where it almost looks so over the top, you think that couldn't have actually happened. And in fact, it was absolutely spot on. Right. Or we would wake up in the morning and the car would be up on the lawn. Oh, my <laughs> God. In the neighbor's fence. And we had been in the car with my parents coming home from these parties. <clears throat> He'd have to carry my mother in the house. I mean, they were partiers. So they clearly liked each other. Well, I don't, I don't know because I never can remember a time when there was, I mean, it might've, it might've been dead by the time I can remember, but by the, when I, my memories of them are always the bickering and the fighting Mm. and it escalated to, to, to when my dad left when I was nine years old. And that is when our life kind of flipped. Now, was your, was your dad an officer? He was a cop. No. Oh, you mean in the military? No, he wasn't. He was a staff sergeant. Oh, and then he became a police officer when he got out of the military? Right. right. Which is like what the guys did back then when they came home from Vietnam. They were oh, yeah. cops or, you know, living on the streets, basically. Yeah. Well, I know this is off topic of what we're going to talk about, but anyone who has experience around people or people in general who have gone to Vietnam, uh, I'm curious about, did you, did you experience his experience of Vietnam at all? No. No, and I think he, um, like our experience, like I was talking about as a kid living on base and running behind the mosquito foggers at Kaneohe and eating hot dog or hot dogs and, and um, donuts off the donut, you know, the trucks that would come around and feed us and playing. And I remember him being gone. And I remember as I got older, watching the TV screen as the names rolled by to watch for his name. Oh God. The dead are missing. Um, and um, my family would be like, what do you, why are you watching that? We already know he's fine. He's fine. They would tell us if he wasn't fine, there's going to be somebody who would come to the door before um, you would see it on the TV screen. So then I would sit at the door <laughs> waiting for somebody to pull up and tell me my dad was dead. That's so much trauma. I know. I know. And the things that, the things that people say to children when they're young, like to children and that crap that you carry through your life. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wish I had 
been more aware of this even when I was raising my children to not say stupid things to them that would traumatize them. Right. Well, good luck uh, having children and then not traumatizing them in some way. I think that's just the nature of the beast, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Also, can we talk a minute about running behind the mosquito killing machine? Right. Yeah. And all those chemicals and. And they were spraying that deep. DDT or whatever. That's what they were spraying. I know. Machines would go through the neighborhoods at night and it would just be a fog you couldn't see. And we would run behind them, chasing them. And because then we could stay out later because the mosquitoes would leave us alone. Well, I mean, (laughs) I'm surprised that both of my children have all of their limbs. I mean, that's for real. That major issues from DDT. Yeah. Yeah. And they were just spraying it on us night after night after night. I think we lived on base for 18 months and it was every single night. Wow. Right. Crazy. Nine years old dad leaves without a trace or did he say anything to the kids? No, I remember the night he left. It was pretty traumatic. It was horrible. I mean, my parents fought every night and they're fighting. Like my mother was a vicious fighter. Like mm-hmm. they're screaming, dishes hitting the walls. Um, just, you know, this, this horrific, um, abusive screaming and yelling and, and tearing my father apart. And my dad was quiet. He would sit on the sofa. And uh, the only way that I knew he was alive was I could hear his lighter flicking and the pop tops on the Paps Blue Ribbon cans opening because he, I would hear my mother yelling and he would just sit there and I'd hear him mumbling. And I, I just remember thinking she's going to, she's going to force him to leave. She's going to make him leave. She's going to make him leave us because she's so vicious. And I mean, as a kid, that's kind of, that's what you think. (laughs) Sure. But also he's like, I've been through Vietnam. Give me your work. That's, and he was at Quezon too, which I guess. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Crappy, like horrible, horrific thing. Yeah. He served three tours. He served three tours. And I think the second two were to get away from my mom. I mean, seriously, because so, yeah, that, I think that's why he was able to like maintain through this catastrophic craziness going on around him, like this cacophony of, of gunfire and screaming and yelling and whatever that my mom was throwing at him. He just sat there watching TV. He'd flip through Johnny Carson and whatever else was on and smoke a cigarette and the way I, the reason I know this is I would sneak out of my bedroom and crawl along the hallway and look to make sure it was alive. And he would like give me the thumbs up or make funny faces at me when my mom walked away to kind of lighten the atmosphere. So I'd lay in the hallway giggling, you know, laughing. And my mom would come back in and he'd go like, scoot back to your bedroom, <laughs> get back in there. Because she was, um, I think she was, she had some undiagnosed mental illness, Um, she, she just was not able to cope with much. And I was the oldest of five when I was nine, my little brother, my youngest brother was born. So were you also de facto parent then? Not at that point, not Mm -hmm. until a couple of, not until I was about 10 or 11, maybe 10. Um, because my dad did finally leave and he was still involved in our lives. He would still come around. He'd still show up for his weekends. He'd take us out to meals. Um, and then my mom would disappear. She just wouldn't come home. And as a child, that's so dramatic. I would have these thoughts like she was dead. She was lying on the side of the road dead. 
or somebody had murdered her, or she had a car crash, or she just decided not to come home to us. So then my dad would come and pick us up and take us out. And because he was a cop, he could, you know, kind of put out an APB, like, can you please find my ex-wife? <laughs> find out where she is. And she was usually at like one of the local bars. She just couldn't cope anymore. And she, that's where she spent her time. That was her, her medicine, her, you know, her self-medication was sitting at the bars drinking. But your dad didn't try. Did he, did your dad knowing that your mom was doing that? Did he put in uh, like, try and get you guys try and get custody? No, he was an alcoholic and his alcoholism. Although I remember it through my childhood, he was, he was drinking. He was a functioning alcoholic. And it like, after he left my mom, after they divorced, he was like fully engaged in just drinking. And the less the more he drank and the more that like consumed his life, the less he started seeing us until he finally did disappear. And by the time he disappeared, we had been living for about a year in just like abject poverty, just horrific. We sometimes we didn't have electricity. Sometimes we didn't have a phone. We never had clean clothes. We lived in a house that didn't, that had a, a septic system that backed up. So it was just this horrific it was horrible. That's awful. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Yeah, it was It was not fun as a kid because I would go to school and I didn't have clean clothes and I couldn't shower. So I, I stank, you know, and kids would make fun of me and bully me. And, you know, I, it's not that I wanted to stink or I wanted to not have the nicest clothes or be accepted. It's just that I was a stinky kid, you know, that, and I, it's, they started ostracizing me and shunning me and, you know, bullying. And it was, it was rough. It was really rough. Yeah. And in the middle of all of this, like this year that my mom just really, she started disappearing for longer amounts of time. She'd be gone for like a week. How are you eating and things? <sighs> so I remember once having like a bag of corn that she picked up on the farm because she would still go and see my, my, my grandmother in the farm and she'd bring home like tomatoes or corn and she'd say, oh, here's groceries, and she would leave. And I remember having six years of corn for five kids and having to, like, cut one of them up and so that everybody could eat. And I'm like, screw this. So I, um, I started stealing food from this local convenience store. I borrowed my friend's um, – a friend of mine had a uh, paper route. So I borrowed her paper route bag, and I went in there, and I was stealing bread and peanut butter and jelly and cans of SpaghettiOs. Um, cans of green beans. And I remember getting busted once. And the woman, this amazing woman, she came out and she said, why are you stealing from me? Why don't you ask me for the food? And I was like, that never occurred to me. She said, I know you're not, you're not stealing candy. You're not stealing toys. You're stealing food. So something's wrong. So from now on, no stealing. You ask me. Oh my God. You'd go in there and she'd have a bag of like, I, she'd say, I can't sell these. And it would be like SpaghettiOs and more peanut butter and, you know, bags of chips and some candy bars. And at the time, I remember thinking as a kid, wow, why can't she sell this stuff? It's great. And where were your grandparents during all this? Why were they not stepping in? So right around the time, like 1972, when my little brother was born, my grandfather died, my mom's father. And he was like the pillar of our family. He was our rock. He um, was our, he was everything. He was, you know, my mom's dad 
he spoiled her. You know, he would, he would give her money without my grandmother knowing her. My grandmother would find out and she would be pissed. And her mother, my mother's mom died when she was born. So my dad, so for about three years, she didn't have a mother. So my grandfather remarried or married a woman to have a caretaker for his child, basically is what he did. And this lovely woman, this, oh my gosh, her name's Lenora Bell, just an adorable name. She was just, she came from this big, huge family in Southern Illinois or Indiana, and she just loved life, loved people, loved her family, was just, just this good hearted woman who raised my mom. And then they had two more kids together. So I have two uncles who are freaking awesome. <laughs> just amazing people because of her, I'm sure. Um, but there was, there was always this angst between my mother and her mother, her stepmother, um, who as kids, we didn't know this. We didn't know that she was not our maternal grandmother. And I remember in like the, my mother just went on these rages, these rampages against my father because he took off and he left us with no money. Um, she had to raise us on her own. And she told us one day, driving to the farm, she's like, you know, this isn't really your grandmother. And I was like, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, she's not your real grandmother. She doesn't love you as much as she loves, you know, your cousins. And yeah, just these really, so there was this, I don't know what it was going on with them, but, and looking back, my grandmother expected my mother to step up and take care of her kids. She expected her to pull her boots on and get to work. And my mother just, didn't either have the capacity to do that or didn't want to do that. So there was always this headbutting between the two of them. And the uncles, nobody else noticed that the kids were going out without food. And well, they were younger. They were so much younger. My, the, my youngest uncle is only, I don't know, maybe, maybe eight years older than me, maybe a little older. And then my oldest uncle is like 12 years older than me. So they they were younger at this time. And my, my older uncle had a family. My grandfather died. So he stepped in to take care of the farm. So he was just not, and my mother was hiding things. She was, she wouldn't tell them that she left us for days at a time. So it's just this like perfect storm of, of um, not being invested enough to see what was going on. <laughs> not, not having the capacity to be as invested as maybe people should be. And back then, teachers didn't step in. Now, the, the teachers would step in. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, they didn't dare back then. I remember a neighbor of ours beating the crap out of a teacher at school because she said that their son couldn't read. Like, he went into school, pulled her out by her hair, and was beating the crap out of her. And nothing happened. The insanity of, like, the 60s and early 70s. I just, I mean, on the one hand, I'm kind of glad I lived through it, so I have some perspective. And how bad things could be and how crazy things could be. But I'm kind of glad that my kids don't have to endure the insanity that was the 60s as far as family life. Or corduroy. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Corduroy. So side note real quick. I had a friend whose father ordered a corduroy sofa. And it was and he was so proud of this. Come over and see my corduroy sofa. And it was this like lime green, big oh. real corduroy sofa that he was so proud of and that we couldn't sit on. And oh my God. Yeah. Corduroy. Ick. That was back when they put plastic on the nice couches. 
and on the lamps. I have photos of my grandparents' houses with plastic still on the lampshades. <laughs> and then there was furniture that children could sit on and could not sit on. Sure. Good dishes. Like we would get these plastic crappy plates and I couldn't wait to be an adult so I could have the China, the good, you know, spode China from the bold box or whatever. It's so funny because again, we're, we're off tangent, but it's uh, my mother, when she gave me the family China, I thought, what, a, what, so this is the good stuff. I said, well, yeah, I, I get that. But when do you, what do you use this once a year? It's just taking up space. <laughs> you know, right. Like, and then there would be just boxes and boxes of good China. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the basement. I'm like, no, let's get that stuff out and use it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. All right. So dad is gone. Nine years old. Nine years old. It's a whole new world. Mom is not showing up. Things are abysmal. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Um, so I was I was about probably 11 and a half. So this was going on for quite a while, actually, about 11 and a half. And um, I, there's a knock on our door one day, this house that we were living in. We didn't have lights and I couldn't see outside to see who it was. I was talking to a friend on the phone. One of the times we had a friend and I'm like, hang on a second. And I opened the door and there's a police officer and a woman with the biggest beehive hair I've ever seen in my life standing there. And they asked for my mom. And I said, no, my mom's not home. And they said, well, where is she? And I said, well, she's working. And she had not been home for probably a week at this point. And the cop said, well, we've had reports from the neighbors that you may not have food. And I'm like, oh yeah, we have plenty of food. We have plenty of food. We had no food. I'm like, yeah, there's plenty of food. And the woman said, well, can we come in and look? And I said, no, my mom said not to let anybody in. Because I'm thinking if they come in this house and see the pigsty that it is, I mean, the, our kitchen floors were so sticky that your shoes would stick to it. We didn't have furniture. We had a mattress that was like bent up against the wall that we used as our couch. My little brother and sister were asleep on that. And both of them were in diapers and we didn't have diapers. So I had taken some towels and like just put them under them so they could sleep. So I didn't have to clean up pee and poop like I had to every other moment of the day. And I thought if they come in here, they're going to take us away and they're going to put us in a home. So I wouldn't let them in. So then the woman reached around and she handed me this letter, this envelope, and she said, give this to your mother. And I remember smelling them, like smelling how fresh and clean they smelled and the perfume on this woman. And I think it was Tigris because Tigris was what my mother used to wear. And I just remember smelling this thinking, they're so clean. They're so they just smell so clean. I want to be clean. And our house must, I mean, when we opened the door, it must have just wafted sewage and filth. And I knew this. I mean, by that time, I was aware of this, this horrific condition we lived in, and I was embarrassed by it. And so I forgot that my friend was on the phone. So I said, lock the door, and they left. And I got back on the phone with my friend. I'm like, oh, it was a cop at the door with a letter. And she goes, well, open it. And I open it, and there was, it just basically said, Um, It has come to our attention that your children are not being cared for. They may not have food at times. They're dirty. And when I read that, I was so embarrassed. I'm like, God, people are talking about us. People who I don't know are talking about us. And then at the bottom, it said, if you don't do something soon, we're going to have to step in. And that's all it said. It was like just this like note. Hey, um, you might want to get your act together because if you don't, we may have to do something. So don't force us to do that. 
And I remember laughing with my friend on the phone and she's like, oh, good God. She goes, what, what the hell? I'm like, yeah, I know. We just laughed it away. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh my God, now on top of all of this, not having food, not being able to go to school because I have to take care of my siblings, um, trying to figure out how to keep us clean. Now we're potentially going to be taken away and split up and like given away to people. That's what's going on in my mind. Yeah. So, um, and I, I kind of feel like with my mother leaving us and not caring for us, maybe she would have liked for that to happen. But when she read the letter, she was pissed. And she's like, she was like, how dare they come to my home and tell me how to raise my kids? I'm like, uh, yeah, but mom, we're living in shit in literal shit here. Come on. So she's like, fine. So she found a, a um, daycare to put us in this church daycare in a little town called Woodstock, just out near, um, like near my grandmother's farm. And I, I mean, I was like, I am, I am too old to be going to a daycare, but I couldn't go and let my siblings go and not be with them. Cause I was so attached to them. I wouldn't let them out of my sight. I was just so, um, well, you were de facto mother at that point. Yes. Right. So, yeah. yeah, I was, um, I mean, if we got sick, and my little brother got sick. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I, called, I would call my aunts and uncles and people. And they were like, well, take him to a doctor. I'm like, I'm nine. I'm 10 or 11. How do I, how do I get my, my brother to a doctor? <laughs> you know, so just, it was just, it was insane. It was crazy. It was a crazy life. Um, I hated it. I was miserable. But so we go to this daycare. And it was heaven. There was fresh, there was food, there were um, showers, I could take a shower every day. And we had this amazing daycare provider, this, this woman, she was not much older than me, she might have been 18 at the time, who kind of took us under her wings. And she made sure that we, she would take our clothes off, wash them for us. She brought in clothes for us to put on, then she would put us back in our clean clothes, she would let us shower, we had as much food as we wanted to eat. She would bring more food out to feed us. I mean, we were eating all the time. We were showering. We were safe. And we were being cared for. And it was, it was a reprieve for me. And then my mom met a woman there named Gail, who was a single mom, had three kids. And Gail told my mother about a church that would help her with anything and everything she ever needed. They would take your kids off your hands. There's lots of men there because they were both single looking for husbands. <laughs> and my mom saw the golden ring. She's like, there it is. I'm going to go for it. So she went, she took us to this church that ended up being the culty thing that we got into. And, um, you know, from there, it's a whole different story. <laughs> What was the church called? It's called the um, Ingleside United Methodist Church in Ingleside, Illinois. And Ingleside is this little crappy community near Fox Lake. That's another crappy community. And there's all these chains of lakes around there. And their claim to fame is that they were Al Capone's like summer. Um, like he would go there to, to, vac to summer on the lake in Ingleside. Was calling it Methodist a cover then? Because... Obviously, Methodists aren't a cult, so no. Depending on how you view religion, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But in the, I mean, they were just a mainline. It was a, it was a Methodist church, 
It was um, under the um, guidance of the United Methodist Church Northern Conference in Chicago. Um, they had a hierarchy. I mean, it was it was part of the church. The money that was taken in went to the church. Um, Lou was ordained, and he was given the task of caring for that congregation, caring for their spiritual needs. But it turns out that the the pastor there was um, was not. He was not a good man. <laughs> That's he, Lou. Yeah, yeah. His name was Lou Hillendahl. And I remember the first time we visited, I remember how creepy it was. And I remember even Gail's kids telling me, her older son telling me at daycare, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. You don't want your mom to go there. She's going to get brainwashed. My mom's brainwashed. And the brainwashed was just the the word that was used, the umbrella of anybody who didn't think for themselves and was controlled by somebody else at that time. You know, it was, this was 1972. Um, so my mom decides that she's going to go check this church out because she needs some help. And she really did. I think her intent at the time was, I am not doing a great job here. I need something to help me, anybody. She was, she was desperate. Um, I think she knew that she had to get her shit together and take care of her kids and make sure that we were cared for because I think she did love us. I just think she didn't. She didn't have the mental bandwidth to be a mother of a single mother of five children. Um, so she was looking for help. So, and they, they promised her that they would help her. Gail said, this is a place of, uh, this is a helping congregation of people who will take you in and care for you and give you everything that you need, but not only give you everything you need, help you get back on your feet so that you can take care of yourself was how it was presented to my mother. And when we went there, it certainly looked like a fellowship of people who cared about each other, who helped each other, who wanted the best for each other. But I don't think that the congregation, the people who were there as parishioners and Lou's agenda were the same. It, and, and I don't think that they realized it back then, how... Um, how duplicitous he was and how um, he had his own agenda. He had his own, he's, he saw himself as the savior of the world. He had all these amazing ideas that were going to, you know, fix people's lives because he'd already been doing that. He'd been helping all of these people who came to him for help and their lives were better for it. Well, they weren't better. They were just reprogrammed to think and believe the way that he saw as better for them. And what happened within the confines of his belief system? What happened with you and the family and kids in general? So Lou had a few different, I don't know if you call them dogmas or beliefs that were not in line with like mainstream religious beliefs. Like for one, he didn't believe that Jesus was part of a trinity. He believed Jesus was just a man who became perfect and found favor with God. So if Jesus did that, then everybody could do that. And apparently Lou had already attained this perfection at some point. <laughs> of course. Because, yeah, because he was above reproach. Um, and then under that, under that principle, I guess you could call it a principle rather than a dogma, his belief that everybody could become perfect like Jesus, he set out these 
these therapies and these ideologies and these practices that if you adhered to them, you could become perfect. Like one of them was making a commitment to Christ rather than being saved. Ah, yeah. Okay. So by making the commitment to Christ, you also made a commitment to him and his, the fellowship. And under that commitment, you were to, um, you, um, promise to be a, to be open to any kind of, um, critique or, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, accusations. Like if I saw you, if, if you made a commitment to the church and to Christ and I saw you doing something that looked like it was probably not very Christ-like, I could confront you and tell you, Hey, you better get your shit together. Stop doing that. You need to get back in line here. And then, but you also need to ask forgiveness, need to confess and ask forgiveness from the whole group because you've done something wrong and it's broken that commitment to Christ and to the community or to the church at that point. So there's this like this, this um, kind of control, this level of control over your behavior. And even outside of the church, like husbands and wives would hold each other accountable. Like if a husband, you know, if a wife was seen as being lazy, like she didn't clean her house or she didn't um, have dinner ready on time. That wasn't meeting her husband's needs, which was part of that whole ideology of committing to Christ. Therefore, the husband could call her out and not only call her out, but call in a group of leaders to confront her and force her to confess. What was punishment? Um, Well, there wasn't a whole lot of literal punishment for the adults. So the same thing could be applied to the kids. So the adults just had to ask for forgiveness, cry a little bit, show their remorse, and then things were good. For children, like if I were to be found disobedient, and I can't, I wish I could count the times that I was hauled into church before a bunch of leaders, confronted on my disobedience, and then paddled within an inch of my life. Mm. So we got paddlings. We got paddlings if we talk back. And talking back could be just as simple as questioning. Why are, why are you thinking this way? Why are you behaving this way? Why am I, why are you doing this to me? Soap in the mouth, um, Tabasco sauce in the mouth. So there were all of these punishments for the kids that we were, we were expected to adhere to the same level of commitment as the adults, even though we were never asked to make the commitment or to, we were never asked our opinions. We were never asked if we wanted to be a part of this. It was expected of us. Was your mom being more together, for lack of a better word, during this time? No. So my mom was getting counseling. Almost from the minute she started going, she was getting, she was in these intensive counseling sessions. And they had counseling groups. They had um, like weekend retreats. They had group ministries where you'd have like six or seven leaders and like for hours and hours and hours long counseling sessions. And mind you, none of these people had degrees in counseling. None of them. They were all trained by Lou, who also did not have a degree in counseling or therapy or psychology or any of these these practices that they were using. So that's why I always call it pseudo, you know, pseudo psychology bullshit, because <laughs> it was. And um, so she was she was taking part in these counseling groups. And then she would call us in the five of us in and confess to us the things that she had done. Well, we already knew what she had done. We lived through it and ask us to forgive her. And by that time I was a belligerent 
asshole. <laughs> I mean, I was like angry. I was like, fuck you all. I'm not getting on board with any of this. You're all crazy. I don't want to be here. But I was continuously being, um, you know, being spanked for being disobedient or I was called hostile. So I would sit in these groups. And I'm like, no, I don't forgive you. Nope. <laughs> and the leaders would lose their minds. How dare you be so disobedient? How dare you be so hostile? Your mother's trying to get better. She wasn't getting better. She was just giving them all of this information. She was telling them all of her sins and all the bad things she had done, and they would use them against her later. Just, and it was, it was this, um, um, it was a tool that they used to make sure that people didn't feel better about themselves, but they said they were trying to make them feel better about themselves. Like if you confess all these sins, you're going to feel so free. You're going to feel great. But then you could be sitting in, a, in another church group, just minding your own business. And Lou could say, well, you don't want to turn out like Mary did, you know, because Mary was a prostitute and she was taking pills and she had been, you know, she was abusing her children. So it was like this like passive aggressive way that he would continue to keep people like oppressed and feeling shitty about themselves while he was saying, I'm going to try, I'm making you feel better about yourself because you're confessing all of this. Mm. So it's very perverse. Was he sleeping with the parishioners the way that I always figure cult leaders are just trying to get laid? No. And, you know, he had a really strange idea about sex. So he also, he instituted these bizarre therapies to rid people of their sexuality. Because in his mind, society as a whole, anybody on this planet confused sex and love. So you don't really know what love is. And you're, you really, you are trying to get love by having sex with people and by being sexual. And I just, I, I couldn't understand how he could take this idea and apply it to society as a whole. And then I understood later that that's what cult leaders do. They identify this evil or this wrongdoing, and then they, and they alone have the tools to eradicate it from society, to free society of these these things that are causing us to stumble and not progress and to not be better people. So in Lou's mind, everybody confused sex with love and he was going to teach us and show us the difference. And the way that he did that was that he created this therapy called special groups where people would attend. And after hearing Lou's, um, speeches about how everybody confuses sex and love, everybody would strip naked and lay next to each other. Yeah. But you couldn't have sex. Adults and children or just the adults? No. So it wasn't young children, but I was indoctrinated when I was 14. And at the same time, there were two other girls that were my age that were also indoctrinated into this. And, um, Prior to this, people, he was, people were talking about this. I feel like I'm going all over the place. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. You're good. You're good. <laughs> so prior to my indoctrination into this special group, I was considered a hostile. I was considered, I, I never adhered to Lou's way of thinking. He knew that I hated him. He knew that I was not going to get on board with his theologies and his beliefs and his practices and his therapies um, because I was continuously um, combating 
I was, con- I was combative all the time. I was angry. I was hostile. Um, were your siblings on board? No, they were so young though. I was older and they were younger. My brothers were just as hostile as I was, but they were able to just blend into the wall. They were the wallflowers. I was the one who was always, but what do you mean by that? Why are you saying that? Why do we have to do this? Why, what's wrong with you? You're church freaks, you know? And I would just be, I was very vocal. I was very vocal then and I'm very vocal now. Um, So I constantly got myself into trouble. So in my mind, Lou hated me, but because he's a sociopath, I think, and a narcissist, he didn't have feelings for any of us. I was a tool just as they were. So people were going to these special groups and coming into church meetings and saying, oh, I had this amazing, beautiful experience. I can't tell you about it because I promised not to, but it was a beautiful experience and it changed my life. And at that point, I'm thinking, what are they doing now? Because they've done just about everything crazy they possibly can. They hug each other. They sit on each other's laps and cry. They confess all their sins. They pound on pillows when they're angry. They they say they're having feelings and they don't know what they're feeling. They can't articulate their emotions. So somebody does it for them. I mean, there's all this insanity going on. So in my like 14 year old mind, I'm like, what could they possibly be doing now that's so beautiful? Um, And I didn't ever expect to find out but I was invited to one of these groups one night when I was 14 years old. On the one hand, there is, there's like, you know, people who, there's a man in the church who abused his own daughter for years, like sexually molested her. So there are people who do, who are abusive like that. And then there's sexual assault. In my mind, they're different. And somebody asked me this question a few weeks ago on one of my posts. I'm like, okay, I have to define this because in my mind, they're different. So there's, there is, you know, the, the continued sexual abuse, like pedophilia and molestation and things like that. And then there's a sexual assault that just comes at you out of nowhere, you know, and you're devastated. And then it, then it, then they back off and then it comes again. So that's what the special group was like to me. It was, a, it was an assault. I was 14 years old. I was invited to this group that was going to change my life. I'm sitting in this group thinking about school and cheerleader tryouts and my friend borrowing my clothes and my homework, selling candy bars. And this man, this, this pastor, my pastor is talking about how people in society confuse sex and love. And he's going to show us how to get past that. And then people undress men and women undress from the top up and then they start sitting on each other's laps and and you had to undress as a child uh, so I was expected to but there was a girl on my right hand side I was sitting on the floor with the girl this girl on my right hand side she was a friend of mine and this man on my I'm sorry a girl on my right and this man on my left hand side and this man was just he was he probably had an IQ of 98 So he had some issues, but he was the sweetest guy on the planet and people undress and the girl on my right hand side just started screaming, screaming, like at the top of her lungs. And I was just like, I was petrified. I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do here. All of the adults in my life, these people are supposed to advocate for me. My pastor, grownups have just gotten naked in front of us. And what am I supposed to do? So she starts screaming. And the next thing I know, her mother and another woman are on top of her, pulling her shirt off of her. 
they were like stripping her and she's screaming and scratching at them. And I remember seeing scratches and blood and, and hair and stuff flying and kicking. She was kicking at them and they continued to try and pull her shirt and her bra off of her. She might've been 15, maybe 16. And then the guy on my left starts like howling like an animal, like this ear piercing howl. And I looked over and he's got an erection. I mean, he's turned on, right? And then four women come over and start rubbing their bare chests on his face and his body to make his erection go away. Yeah. And I'm sitting in the middle of this. I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should leave. Is this a nightmare? Is this what, what the hell is happening? Why is my pastor doing this? Why are all these people around me doing this? And these are men and women, grown men and women. Some of them are elderly. So before when I said, was there a sexual component? The answer is yes. <laughs> well, yes, but not like, not like, you know, the penetrative, penetrative sex is not the only game in town. Obviously. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. clearly has voyeuristic tendencies, you know, psychosexual power tripping. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Voyeuristic. Oh my God. I never even, I think you like hit the nail on the head. The guy was a creep. Yes. He's a, he's a sexual predator. Yes. Oh my God, Susan. Thank you. Yeah. I guess in the mix of things, I kind of got forgotten for a while and I started kind of backing up towards the door because the door wasn't that far behind me. It was maybe five feet. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to make a run for it. They won't even notice. And as I'm kind of scooching back, somebody grabbed my arm I was like, God damn it. <laughs> Crap. And it was, it was a woman who I trusted. So there was a couple in the church who I really liked. And I would, I would spend a lot of weekends at their house and they were building a new home. So I'd go over there and watch the kids while they were working on their home or while they went to the grocery store. And there was this, there was a relationship with them. It was kind of like an older brother and sister kind of a thing, but I kind of had a crush on the guy because he was just so charismatic and, you know, in my young girl mind, I'm like, I had a, you know, like a girl, a school girl crush on him. So the woman picks me up and she takes me over to her husband who's sitting in a chair without a shirt on. And she said, it's okay, take your shirt off. And I'm like, I, I can't do this. And I was like, had my arms across my chest. So she pulled my shirt off and I was sitting like this and I had on like a little training bra. So I was totally humiliated. I didn't even have a bra at this point. I was 14. I wasn't really developing. And, you know, as a kid, as a girl, it was kind of cool to, to wait for that, to, to see that coming in the future. Like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to grow some breasts. It's going to be great. I'm going to get a bra. So I had a training bra. <laughs> and they were just like, you know, like just little white cami tops that I wore. And I remember just being so humiliated by that. And she pulled that off. And I just sat on her husband's lap with my arms across my chest, across my prepubescent budding breasts and he was rubbing my back and I thought I should like this but I don't Man. yeah because that's assault <laughs> yes it is assault it was that and then not that that was the worst of it because I'm thinking okay I just have to get through this and I can leave then all the women stand in a circle and they pull me into the circle and my arms are pulled behind the women's backs that are next to me so my my tiny little breasts are pointing to the center of the circle 
the men get in the middle of the circle and start squeezing the breasts of the women in the circle. And then not only are they come around and squeezing their breasts, but they're like comparing them. Like somebody will squeeze mine and then the woman next to her, like, oh yeah, feel the difference there. Oh yeah. And they like heft them like melons in a store. And this whole time this girl is down the hallway screaming. So she's screaming in the background and they're just continuing with this, this special group that's so amazing. It changes people's lives. I'm feeling assaulted this, this poor man's laying on the ground in a pile at begging for somebody to help him. I mean, it's like, it was, it was insanity. The man, the man with the low IQ. Yeah. Yeah. He was laying on the floor still just in a, they just left him there. They just left him laying on the floor with an erection curled up. Yeah. This is so bizarre. Now is Lou in the room during yeah. this? Yes masturbating probably no he wasn't he was like filming it filming it for later so so here's what i'm thinking i'm thinking okay either either this is like this is going to stop and they're going to realize that this is bad and they're not going to do it again or um the police are going to have to come in and make the stop that's what I'm, I'm standing there thinking this and realize, I mean, I didn't even realize at the time that that was, that was the, the truth of the situation. Was your mother present in the room? No, my mom was not in this group. And I can probably almost tell you every single person that was in this room at the time, these men from the church, leaders in the church, my pastor, their wives, a couple of other girls. Um. And before the group starts, we're sworn to secrecy. Everybody of has course. Secrecy. Predators thrive in secrecy. Right, right. Right. But it's a beautiful thing. Right. Why are you reacting the way you are? Right. So why are you reacting this way? Because of your sexual hangups. So you have sexual hangups if you feel uncomfortable right now, is what I was told. As a 14-year-old child, I had sexual hangups. While a 55-year-old man stood in front of me squeezing my little teeny tiny bunning breasts. Freaking perverts. So that's why I make the difference between the continued, like this man abusing his daughter, molesting her, which was so disturbing. And he was in that group. This man who molests his own daughter. And this like assault that just takes place like like at the moment when you're not expecting, when you're expecting something different and they, they just come at you with this insanity. And they had, there had to be some of those people who knew that it was wrong. There had to be people there who are taking part, who had to know that involving a 14 year old girl was wrong. Any of it. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter the age of anyone. It's all, it's all, sexual predatory Mm -hmm. yeah yeah all of it was wrong yeah all of it was wrong and you were a victim of that as were many people in that room wow god that's a lot oh so in Lou's mind he's telling these people you're not supposed to be having sex. This is to rid yourselves of sexuality, to rid yourself of the sex thoughts. Oh, let me put, tell you another piece too. So he's putting these people in these situations. He doesn't know what's going on in their heads. He doesn't. So I was sleeping with a man in his tent because his wife was out 
learning how to bird babies in Jamaica or something so that he wasn't sleeping alone. And I woke up to him like rubbing up against me. And I was like, this is, this is so sick. I can't tell you how many times that happened to me, not sex, but it's like these men who knew what they were doing. Sexual assault. Yes. You know, masturbating on my thigh or something. Yeah. It's a sexual assault. Yeah. It doesn't have to be penetrative. Right. Right. Yeah. It was assault. It was assaultive. And like, and I would tell somebody that, you know, like John just like, he had an orgasm on my leg and they're like, Oh, that didn't happen. He would never do that. You must be lying. You must've been dreaming. So that's the kind of shit that they would do to me. In addition to like using me as like this anti-sex tool for these men. Oh, so sick. So the other thing they did too in Illinois, they decided at some point that they needed to confess every one of their sexual thoughts and then douse their mouths with Tabasco sauce. So we would be, and there were no extracurriculars for kids. We were all in with the adults in every group, sharing groups, Bible studies, whatever there was going on. And there was something every day of the week. We were in there. So we'd be sitting in the room and an adult would go, and Lou would say, yes, Jim, I just had a sexual thought. Well, what was that sexual thought? I wanted to reach over and touch Deborah's clitoris. Will you please forgive me? So not only were we like physically sexually assaulted, it was this like, mental sexual assault being heaped on us from every angle. I mean, and then when this one man said, I wanted to reach over and do this, another man would go, oh, I wanted to do the same thing after I heard him say that. So here I am a child and all of these men are talking about how they want to do these things to me. One woman wanted to squeeze my breasts. Another woman wanted to reach over and touch another woman's. I mean, it's just a sickness. And it was, it's in our, my brain to this day this bizarre behavior and they're dousing their mouths with Tabasco sauce. Please forgive me for having this thought. I wanted to, then this man, he's like getting graphic, like graphic about the things he wants to do to the women in the group. Please forgive me. And they're like, we forgive you. Douses his mouth with Tabasco sauce and they move on. And in the meantime, we're like, like it's like somebody just lobbed a grenade at us. And we're sitting there, how do, I, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with every single adult around me behaving like some rapist, sadomasochistic freak, you know? Shit. That's the crap that he was creating. Yeah, that's, that's so toxic. You're basically in a constant state of sexual assault in those rooms. Exactly. I keep I saying sexual assault because I want to get that across. Like you, you were assaulted. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. That's why I may, tried to make that difference. You know, and not that it's any worse or, 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 you know, like I'm diminishing the fact that this girl was molested by her father, but that insidious hidden abuse that happened to me is different from this assault that was constantly bombarding us. Right. You were also being molested though i mean i just it's the language is is arbitrary the whole thing was horrifying and and you were being attacked yes yeah and i wow as a child i'm like you guys and i remember saying to a woman i'm like i pulled her aside ronnie her name was ronnie and uh i said ronnie this has to stop 
they can't keep doing this because do you re- do you realize that every time one person says it, five more people say it? They're creating these thoughts by confessing them. And she's like, yeah, I know. I can't get that through to Lou, though. Lou won't see that. Lou would not see that that was that he was creating more of this. Yeah, because Lou liked it. He did. He was such a pig. Here's something that he said to us in this in the special groups before he went on to tell us his whole schmear about how sex was a myth. He said, well, there was one point when my daughter was, I don't know, maybe 16, where I felt like I couldn't take her on my lap anymore because it was uncomfortable. And I'm like, did he just tell us that he was like sexually aroused by his daughter? He did. And people are like, oh yeah, totally understand that. I mean, these people like completely right over the head that their pastor is telling them he had sexual feelings about his 16 year old daughter. And because he's such a narcissist, if that's the problem he has, everybody must have that problem. So that's why his whole, yeah, his whole sexism society. Plus. And into play. And I'm like, what the hell? Oh my God. It's, it's mind boggling. And yet at the same time, it's like, yeah, totally, totally believe every single thing you say. Absolutely. Without a, there's not a doubt in my mind. Yeah. God. What's, what, what fascinates me though, is my continued, I'm, I'm amazed that in my mind, when I was in the cult, he was a good man. Like, that's brainwashing. He's a good man. So what's wrong with me? Why am I not? Why do I not like this man? Why is he? Why is he so skeezy? Why do I see him as a as a pervert? Well, you know what Stockholm syndrome is, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, and the the younger version of you who did see that eventually got conditioned and brainwashed. You know, so you give yourself some yes. leeway on that. Yeah. Yeah, because it kind of flips and it's like the slow turn where it's like, oh, there's something wrong with me. Did you tell your mom what was going on or did you keep it secret? No, I I told her. So at this point, though, I had been so I was removed. I was living in another woman's home. I'd been taken out of my mother's home because um, they said that, that my hostility was derailing her progress. Because I was constantly telling her mom, we have to leave here. This place is not good. You're being brainwashed. This is not better than it was before. Lou is a bastard. And we hated Lou. All of the kids in the church hated Lou because of the way that he controlled our parents. But our parents couldn't see it. So they moved me out of her home so that I wasn't constantly trying to get her to leave. Because I think a couple of times I had her pretty convinced that we had to get out of there. But she would go to the church and she would tell them hey, listen, this is what Debbie's telling me. And they'd say, well, Debbie's a liar. She's a liar. She's been hostile from the moment she got here. She's trying to derail your progress. Let's move her out of your home. So she's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I'll just give my daughter away. So I, I did find her in church. So this happened on a Wednesday night. I found her in church. I didn't see her again until Saturday at a meeting. And I said, mom, I have to tell you something. I said, I went to a special group. She goes, oh, you did. Wasn't it wonderful? And I just looked at her and I was like, "Um, no, it wasn't, mom. 
She goes, oh, you must have sexual hangups. And she walked away. I was like, but wait, mom, mom, listen to me. This is not good. And she, she turned and looked at me. She said, look, if I have to call, if I have to call a, a, a counseling session for you, I will. Meaning she would have to call in some other leaders and I would be spanked or ridiculed or you know, punished for trying to get her to leave the church again. So that was the extent of talking to my mom about it. So she had experienced this session. Otherwise, she wouldn't know what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, she, and they experienced it often. I mean, this was happening two or three times. That's a the sex cult. That's the sex cult. Is it? Absolutely. 100%. Okay. <laughs> you were being groomed. Lou groomed the, yes. them into that progression. Yes, he did. He absolutely groomed them. Because I could see it happening over the years that we were there. But they couldn't see it. My mom couldn't see it. I'm like, how could you not see these red flags? I'm a freaking child. I'm not just uncomfortable or angry or hostile. This is psychotic. Well, that's brainwashing for you. And even here we are, you're, you're saying, is that a sex cult? And I'm saying, yes, 100% that's a sex cult, right? You don't know what you don't know when you don't know it. I didn't even think it was a cult when I first escaped. I just thought it was a bad situation. I didn't even see it as a cult until I, I'm like, it, it, like an epiphany one day. I'm like, oh my God, it's a fucking cult. How old are you when that happened? Um, probably 20. Yeah. I was 19 when I escaped and I had lived, I was 12 when my mom joined. I was 19 when I escaped. So that entire time I was there, I didn't see cult. Right. I just felt oppression, mm. horrible oppression. And I wanted to get out. How did it, how did you get out? I literally ran like escape, like ran away. Um, I had tried to run away a couple of times. So after that first special group, I ran away. And I got brought back by the cops because nobody would listen to me. Nobody would, would believe me a lying, thieving, cheating, um, hostile girl. This is what Lou would tell them over this pastor, this wonderful man who was a part of this community for years and years and years and built this beautiful church for them. Um, they wouldn't believe me. I'm like, how I can't make this shit up. <laughs> you know, I'm not, why would I make this up? that they assaulted me in the parsonage. Well, because I was a hostile girl. So they, they brought me back. So I, I ran away. I ran away a couple of times and I just, I was not able to find advocacy kept being brought back. So then um, when, when I finally did escape, I was 19. All I had to do was wait till I was 18. I'm like, I'm out of here. But that day came and I could not leave my siblings behind. So it's like, crap, I didn't even have a plan. I had no plan. All I knew, I was so focused on getting out of there that I it never occurred to me to make a plan. Like, okay, here's what I have to do first. I have to save money. I have to figure out where I'm going to go. I can't leave my siblings. I'm going to have to bring them with me. So I never made these plans. I, I could just, I was so, I mean, living in this psychotic environment, it never occurred to me that, that I could create a plan and follow it through and save all of us from this place. So um, I there was a, a night I was sitting on the boat. So I was, we moved to Bashan. So I broke my promise that I wasn't going to tell anybody. And I told a boy in the church who was also considered hostile towards Lou about the special groups. 
And he's like, man, that's perverted. I'm going to, I'm going to go tell somebody. So he told a man of a woman. So this, there was a couple in the church. They divorced because the man was like, I can't stay with this place. And I can't stay with this anymore. We got to get out. You want to stay fine, but I've got to leave. So this kid tells this man what happened and he got the ball rolling. He called the church hierarchy. He's like, something else is going on out here. You've got to get out there and check it out. He called a local newspaper woman who was on it. And thank God he did because then like all hell broke loose. So they stopped having the special group. So I had to go to two more of those after that initial one. So I was in three altogether, even at the point of me being drugged into, like they drug me to one, they dragged me into one. That's how intent they were on the assault. <laughs> um, so suddenly there's this like newspaper article, um, something, I think I have it somewhere like um, pastor holds sex groups in parsonage. And Lou's like, no, 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 that's not what's happening. Let me tell you what's happening. So this woman goes out to talk to him. He's telling her what's going on. And in his mind, because he can bamboozle anybody and everybody, he's thinking that she is, is like on board with what he's doing. So he's like, yeah, this is a great thing. We're teaching people how to how to handle sexuality out in the world because we're bombarded with it every day and we're helping our young ones overcome sexuality they see on TV. She's like, oh yeah. So she takes all these notes down and she's like, this is fucked up. So she goes back and she writes this scathing article and he loses his mind. Lou lost his mind. So in the meantime, the church hierarchy comes in and they're like, oh, we're done with you. You're done. Either you stand a trial for heresy or get the hell out. So Lou's like, okay, here's my resignation. I'm leaving. So then there's a divide in the church. There's people who are like glad Lou's gone and there's people who follow him. So then we start meeting in people's homes and mind you, in all this time, they continue to do the, the skin time. That's part of this therapy session where um, people sleep together naked, like husbands and wives will split off and sleep with each other's husbands and wives or Single people will sleep with married men. And mind you, too, none of the young boys are involved in this. Only the young girls in the church. He doesn't invite any of the boys. Yeah, he's a sexual predator. Yes. <laughs> and I never, ever, I mean, it took me years, Susan, to even see that. I'm like, wait a minute. He didn't invite any of these boys. Because I've talked to some of the guys who have left the church. And they're like, what the? F I didn't, they're like, I didn't even know that was going on. I was never invited. Like, oh, Lou's idea, Lou's idea is if you put two people together naked in a bed, somehow they'll fight the urge and figure out how to overcome their fleshly desires. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Sure, that worked out great. Idea. Well, and most of these people wanted to validate that for him because they were so invested in him. So they did validate it. But there were some people who were not being, who were not um, committed. <laughs> to Lou and they were they were having full-on affairs I mean there were crazy things happening crazy yeah. one of the couples decided that the man and woman I told you about who I was really close to they decided to leave they're like we can't do this anymore and then what broke the back this woman's back is she came home one night 
And her husband was in the bathtub with this other woman. And she's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We said there were going to be some boundaries and having baths together was our thing. So that was like, that was, that was the line was the bath. bath. (laughs) Molesting, molesting 14 year olds, not the line taking a bath with an adult. That's the line. And I remember sleeping at their house with him buck ass naked when the house wasn't complete and like being terrified. Like I was laying there like stiff as a board next to this big, huge naked man afraid that I, I was afraid of what might happen. So I couldn't sleep all night. And then, I mean, it just would continue. I was used like a tool to desex- desensitize men towards sexual responses. So I was used to, I would go to these to homes of these men, these male church leaders and sleep naked with them in their beds. This is some fucked up shit. Yeah. Serious trauma. This it is. is like, it's like clockwork orange stuff. It is. And, and in their minds, I mean, even when I talk to some of the people today, like when I talk to my mother about it, she doesn't see it as sexual assault or abuse. She's wrong. She's 100% wrong. I know. I know. I know that. I just never labeled this place as a sex cult. And it, it is a sex cult. So we moved to Vashon because Lou needed to get away from all of the media that was after him. I mean, he was like national headline news and he, that was his Achilles heel. He could not stand to be in the newspapers or or to be in the media in the spotlight like that. Um, So I kept that in the back of my mind. (laughs) I knew that was how you could like totally make him crazy. (laughs) Um, So we left Illinois, we moved to Washington state, set up this commune. Um, When I was a senior in high school, I moved on. So Lou had a boat, Lou and his wife built a boat and they were living on this boat, pretty hefty boat. I mean, it's like almost 70 foot boat. And I was living on the boat with them my senior year of high school. And how did that happen? You and your mom or, and also by the way, where are your siblings during all of this? My siblings are still there. They're still in the, they're in the commune, but they're living with my mom. I had never lived with my mom again. I lived with um, three or four other families in tents in the commune. And then my senior year, um, I had found favor with Lou. So I moved on to the boat with them. And How was, did you find favor with Lou? Um, I, at one point, I decided that I had to stop being a belligerent dick all the time if I was going to survive. So I just acquiesced. There was a, I remember the point where I was just like, whatever, I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to say yes to whatever. I'm going to smile when they expect me to smile. I'm going to play the part of I'm in, maybe not 100%, to get them off my back. Like I would do things like confess or I would sing songs in church or I would go up to the altar and pretend like I was praying. So that looked like I was, I was all in. And that made Lou happy. He's like, oh, great. I've finally gotten through this girl. I've changed her life. She is now, you know, she now has the privilege of moving onto the boat with me. And I was only like one in a line of other women, other young girls that he had living on the boat with him. That he had groomed into adulthood. Yeah. Exactly. Holy shit, girl. So I was living on the boat. 
And he wanted me to have skin time with him, which was lay in bed naked with him. But here's how he's, he guised it. He's, or how he veiled it. He's like, you never had a father. You didn't have a father figure when you were growing up. You need to have that refathering experience of being physically close with them, with your father figure. I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to be, I don't want to lay naked with them. The guy would walk around on the boat naked all the time. So, and it was repulsive. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not in that far. <laughs> I am not going to go there. So we constantly, you need to have skin time. You need to have skin time. This is for you. This is for you. And then he would go back up to the commune and he'd call the, the other women leaders. And he's like, she doesn't want to have skin time with me. She's got some kind of hang up. And then they would berate me and disparage me. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't need it. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm 18. I don't need this anymore. I don't need to get close to a man and be refathered. <laughs> so there was one, one night in particular, we were at dinner on the boat and Lou said, are you having sex with your boyfriend? I'm like, no, I'm not having sex with my boyfriend. He goes, well, something must be going on for you to be this, this hostile towards me when all I want to do is be a father figure to you. And I was like, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm leaving and I'm leaving tonight. And he said to me, I'll, I'll, I'll do you myself before you, before I let any other boy do you. Ew. So I'm thinking, is he going to rape me or is he going to kill me? Those are the two things in my mind. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this man? And I looked over at Mary Lou and she just was sitting there like, you know, this is my life. This is his wife. Yeah. yeah, And she's just sitting there like, well, you know, we got to do what Lou wants to do because if you don't, he's a pouty baby. So I said, no, I'm leaving. And he said, before you leave here, you're going to talk to some people. So he left the boat, went up to the commune. It's about six miles. No, it's maybe four miles from the boat. And he said, you come up there and you're going to talk to some people. I'm like, okay, fine, but I'm leaving. And Mary Lou looked at me after we left and she goes, well, we might as well go get this over with. You know, do you want to pack a bag now or do you want to come back for it? And I'm like, let's just go see what he has to say. So I go up to the commune and there's a, an office building and he's in there with four other um, female leaders. And the minute I walk through the door, they're in my face shouting at me, accusing me of being um, ungrateful for Lou's help, hurting Lou, breaking his heart, um, being sexually promiscuous, a sinner. I mean, they're just like, literally like they were spitting on me. They were so close to my face shouting at me. And I just at one point said, like, get away from me. I'm leaving. And then my mom came in with my little brother. My little brother started crying. He's like, don't leave. Please don't leave me, Deb. And I just like, I ran. I just, I got out. <laughs> I like ran past them. And I was running down this, there's a pretty long road on the, the property. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to get somewhere and call a friend. They started chasing me in a car. They came after me in a car. These three women leaders in the church. And I thought, I didn't know if they were going to run me over, if they were going to grab me and take me back. And I thought if they grab me and take me back, I may never get out of here. I may never get to leave. So I just ran. And I ran to a woman's house and was banging on her door to help me and let me in. And this woman like let me in, cleaned me up because I was I, like fell down a, an embankment and I had 
stickers in my hair, like blackberry bushes. Vashon's pretty hilly. Also, it's an island, so you're stuck unless somebody can get you off of there. Yes. Well, so I had friends in high school. So I was going to public high school. And like the year after I left, they pulled all the kids out of public school and started putting them in the church school. So at that point, the kids in the commune were still able to go to school outside. So I had made friends and several of my friends I told a little bit to. And I called a friend, a good friend of mine, and she came and picked me up. And then I got to live in her home for a few weeks. But people on the outside on Bashan had a feeling that something good was not going on. And they, so on Bashan, it's kind of live and let live. You know, you don't, in the 70s it was. You don't get up in anybody's business. If something happens, it's usually somebody needs something. So we're all going to pull together and help them. But if something bad is happening, it's like, look the other way, look the other way, look the other way. Yeah. I think that was just the seventies in general. Yeah. For the most probably. Part. yeah. 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 Teachers at school kind of knew because they would question us and they would ask us things, but Lou also had spies. So he would, he would play us against each other. Like there were a couple of girls that he played against us like they would they would go back to Lou and tattle on us and tell things so if they saw if he saw us talking to the principal he'd call me in like maybe one of the kids at school saw me talking to the principal would go and tell Lou and Lou would call me in and say why were you talking to the principal and I'd be like what are you talking about how would you know this and I said oh um you know I, I just asked him a question about a class or something but they would ask us questions. They would say, are you okay? Are you safe? Do you need anything? Um, what's going on up there? And we wouldn't tell them anything. So they- I need the FBI, please. <laughs> so these poor teachers are trying to advocate for us. And because we're, we're groomed to not tell the secrets and not you know, know that if something gets back, we're in hot water, um, we we're not telling them anything. We wouldn't tell them what was going on. So, I mean, we were, we were virtually prisoners because, I mean, we could still go out to public school, but we never had a life outside of the commune. We weren't allowed to hang out with our friends or do extracurriculars or. What was it like on a day-to-day basis in the, in the commune? What were your you didn't really have a childhood there. So what was the responsibilities? What were they expected besides the gross stuff? Yeah. I mean, it's all gross, but you know what I mean? Um, Well, like I said, we lived in tents, so we didn't have electricity, which meant no lights. Um, We didn't have plumbing, so no running water, no um, indoor toilet, no um, access to those kinds of things. Excuse me. Um, so we had, um, we heated our tents with these big wood stoves, which eat a lot of wood. So we spent a lot of time splitting wood, um, cutting trees, and um, not just on like work days or work nights, but in our free time too. We had to split wood and kindling to keep the fires going in the winter. So it was kind of, you know, the Northwest is damp all year long. It can be 70 degrees and you're cold to the bone because it's so damp and living out in the woods. Um, So we had to deal with a lot of 
we cleaned a lot because there was a lot of mold and, you know, rodents getting into our place. So it was just, you know, continually staying on top of those kinds of things. Um, so we use kerosene lanterns to see. That's what we studied by when we were allowed to study. <laughs> and we also had these porta potties, these little wooden shacks that were built, and each one had two porta potties. And there was one at the end of the camp where I was living in this like five tent cluster. And those had to be empty. So in addition to like our chores of like keeping our home clean, we had to split wood. We had to clean porta potties. We had to maintain our homes in such like if we were camping 24 seven. Now, are you talking tents as in the kinds you would get at REI or were these bigger tents? What, what was the situation there? So they were big, like big green army tents, like those ones you see in MASH. The, and they were surplus army tents that we got. And some people had the smaller ones and some people had the larger ones. And I think they're 18 feet from one end to the other. 18 by nine, if I remember correctly. So they're not, they're not huge. And some people had like five kids living in one of those. It was what did what did girls and women do when they were on their periods? I can't even imagine the level of annoyance and issues with that. And also, were you allowed things like medicine when somebody got sick or mitol when you had cramps or anything like that? Or it was that God would take over in that no, point? Well, we could do that stuff. So I did that. I I brought mitol and um, pain relievers because we were working hard on the property too. So I had those uh, like over-the-counter types of drugs, but you just didn't talk about it. You didn't tell anybody about it because if we were living Christ's way and adhering to truth and honesty, then that would keep us healthy. So if you got sick or had cramps, I remember one girl got menstrual cramps every month and she just had some serious issues and her own mother accused her of having sexual hangups that caused her uterus to contract in a way that was painful and um, debilitating. She was debilitated every month. And all she really needed was to see a doctor and get some help and she would have been fine. She'd done nothing wrong. So oh, that's so sad. It's embarrassing because the, the porta potties had two, two potties in them. And because Wanting privacy was not something that we were allowed. If I was in the toilet, anybody could come in and sit down next to me. Grown man. Yeah, anybody, another woman, um, a child, which, you know, a child or another woman didn't really bother me. But grown men would walk in and sit down and take a crap next to me. So, um, and the, the boys were too embarrassed. Like the teenage boys just didn't go there. So it wasn't like they were just honoring our privacy. They're like, no fucking way am I going to do this? Um, so that was tough. That was you know, no privacy. And um, when I complained about it, I was told, well, you can use toilets at school or you can take showers at school or, you know, you have the privilege of using the toilet in the maintenance building like going to the bathroom in private was a privilege. Were you all showering together as well? Mm -hmm. There was a shower house that was built and there was a wood stove in it and water would run through to warm water. And again, no privacy. I could be showering and 
anybody could walk in and either be waiting in the room outside where my clothes were. So I'm in the shower naked. All of my clothes are out in this little dressing area. <clears throat> or just walk in and wait there and shower. You know, you just kind of made room for somebody else. And I remember just being crammed into this little room, trying not to burn myself on this little wood stove that was heating the water and just showering really quick to get the hell out of there. And then I put a nail in the wall inside the shower area where I would hang a robe and throw a robe on so I could walk through the whoever was sitting out in the dressing area. But a friend of mine, um, I was living with one family and the girl, she was a couple years younger than me. We decided that we could get up really early in the morning, like five o'clock and build a fire, have our breakfast, take a shower in privacy before we went to school. So we started doing that. I think I was probably a junior in high school. And yeah. Wow. It's, it's so surreal to think about people existing like this. And I know uh, certainly you're not the only one. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a, a history of this type of commune slash cult slash practice in America, all over the world, but certainly in America. Once you ran, then were you out for good? And what about your siblings? Um, that was rough. That was really hard because my little brother and sister were still up there. So this was 1981. Um, February 3rd, 1981 is when I escaped. Um, and I continued through school. And I was a hot mess when I left there. And I imagine. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't understand. I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to advocate for myself. I didn't know how to just continue with my life. I was like stuck, like frozen in time. I didn't know how to move it, you know? You've been under an abusive rule for the PTSD, the trauma, all of that. And I imagine Survivor's Guild of getting out with your, especially because you had a, I didn't know you had a little sister. I thought you said all boys. So there were girls behind you coming up. Mm -hmm. My little sister who is um, disabled, She's mentally and emotionally disabled. Um, yeah, they don't like me to talk about them when I talk about the cult, though. They don't even like to be mentioned. But it's difficult to not how, to not be able to put some things in perspective. Did they get out? They all well. My so my two older brothers. I'm the oldest of five, so so I have four younger siblings. The two older boys left a couple of months before I did, and. Um, Went and stayed with a woman on the island who is amazing. She was amazing. She was just the best advocate for us. Um, and then so my littlest brother and sister were still there. And that was that was why it was difficult for me to leave when I was 18. And but I was still in high school. I was trying to, I wanted to graduate. And I was afraid if I left again, I may not graduate. I wanted to go to college. Um, but um Leaving, leaving them, that was like, I had so much guilt over that. And then I tried to get them out. Like I called my aunts and uncles and I'm like, I was telling them a little bit about what's going on. And like, yeah, we know, we know what's going on. We've been out there. Um, we can't do it. There's nothing we can do. You know, we can't just kidnap them. Um, so then I went to um, CPS, King County CPS, told them and they're like, oh yeah, we're aware of the situation and we know who you are. So Lou had like preempted me, called them and told them that this angry, hostile girl, oh, and by the way, she stole from us when she left here. 
So he was telling people that I had stolen some kind of coins from the boat when I left. And I had no idea what he was talking about until just right before coronavirus, I found his son. He has an, a son who still lives in um, Texas. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, um, can, you know, can I ask you some questions about your dad, this man who destroyed my life? And he talked to me for several hours. And the story of the coins was when Lou's mother died, Lou went back to Texas for her funeral and he took a bunch of things from her home, just took a bunch of things. And apparently the coins that Lou took were actually meant for his son and they were worth quite a bit of money. So that's the story that I got from Lou's son that Lou actually stole the coins from his mother's estate. Oh, snap. <laughs> because, because he didn't want to let anybody know that he still had them saying that I stole them and took them when I left was getting him off the hook. Cause this was only a, you know, a, a short time after his mother passed away. So it's like, Oh, we can kill two birds with one stone. I can disparage dad and I can pretend like I don't have the coins anymore that are worth about 10 grand. So <laughs> that was interesting to find out, you know, over the years I talk to people and I find out these little bits of information that fill in these holes that make that, that, I have these epiphany moments like, oh my God, that's why, that's why he called me a thief when he knew I wasn't a thief. He knew that I didn't take those coins from the boat. I'm like, did I? Did I take them? What happened to them? You know? How did the cult eventually become disbanded? Actually, Lou, he started developing Alzheimer's and he had been grooming this woman to take over from him. And he always had a, a female partner, never a male co-pastor. So he'd been grooming this woman for years to take over his position when he retired, but he started developing Alzheimer's. So they kind of, she kind of booted him out early and took over. And at that point he was, he was not the center of attention anymore. She was. So all of these people had devoted their entire lives and affection and, and attention on Lou now shifted it to this woman. So Lou was out cold. He was, and he was sickly and eventually he ended up in the nursing home on the island and he died there um i think 2000 2007 can't remember but he he died in the nursing home and not one of those people went to his funeral did the woman that took over maintain all these skin things and yeah it just kind of it just kind of kind of fizzled out. Um, once Lou retired and the other pastor took over, I think she was a true psychopath. Lou, sociopath, this woman I think was a psychopath. Um, she would harm children in such abusive, horrible, remember that book Sybil, that girl who was like locked in a closet? That's what she would do to kids. She would lock them in closets and, um, take their, take their clothes off them and put them outside in the snow. I mean, she was a fucking psychopath. Um, she was so abusive. I mean, Lou was abusive, but there was this like adoration for him and like this love, like he was a father figure to them. Although a lot of, and a lot of people didn't really pay attention to the fact that he was destroying their families in the process. I remember a woman who I interviewed cause I was going to do a documentary 
with a friend years later and I went and talked to her and she was just so praise. She praised Lou like he was this wonderful man who made her life great. And I'm like, but wait a minute, both of your daughters, you know, your, your relationship with them was broken because they decided not to stay in the church. Lou effectively kicked out all three of your boys, broke your family apart. Then, you know, later on accused your son of molesting children and yet you think he's a good man? I'm like, no, the guy's a piece of shit and you need to wake up. He destroyed your family. And she's kind of looking at me, she's like, oh, like that moment I had with you, like, oh, it's a sex call. Oh, shit. She's yeah. kind of looking at me, I was like, oh, and I like destroyed her whole world by telling her this man was a fucking psychopath who destroyed her family. And I mean, on the one hand, I, I, I felt bad because she's elderly and like what at this point what difference does it make her family has like invited her back into their lives but on the other hand I just had to say no I'm not going to let you sit here and tell me that this man did good for you because he did not if you're that delusional at this point in your life years and years after it ended so um did Lou have a habit of kicking out the boys the competition Um, yeah, he, so like I said before, he wouldn't invite any of the boys to the special groups or, I mean, he would, he would praise himself for being this wonderful, loving father figure. And we were this extended family, except that love quote, end quote, only was bestowed upon the young women, not the boys who were so in need of, you know, acceptance and love and validation and he was just abusive to them. He, um, like, physically abusive. He attacked my brother one day and, like, smashed his head onto a wood stove. And the problem is when Lou would get, when his anger would explode, and he's a huge man, that's hard to stop, even for men in the commune. But they wouldn't. They just stood back and watched as he would do these things. And he was constantly disparaging them. There was a guy in high school who was, like, an, an MVP in the basketball team, he was, he was so good that had he been encouraged, he could have gone pro. I mean, he could have been a professional basketball player. We're sitting in a group one day and, and out of the blue, Lou says, I wouldn't pay a nickel to see him play basketball. And we're like, the fuck, what does that mean? And this boy remembers that to this day. I interviewed him too. And he's like, yeah, that was, that was like a knife in my heart. I'm sitting there minding my own business. He's such a sweet guy too. He really was a sweet, sweet boy, just really kind and, and just adored his family, wanted everything to work out. And he was broken with that one, like that was like the final straw. So, mm-hmm. it, so when we moved to the commune in 1977, when we started moving there, within about three years, all of the teenagers, well, most of the teenagers left as we could. Some escaped like my brothers before they were old enough to emancipate themselves. Um, but there were no young teenage boys left in the commune by like 1980. Except there was one boy who made it work because he wanted a college education. And that's what he had his eyes on. We were, so we were all promised a college education. So did it come? Oh, no. Even the ones who stayed, the younger ones after me, who were promised college educations, could borrow the money, but then they had to pay it back. 
So, Everybody on this commune must have had outside jobs. How was money coming in? Where was money going to live from? So every family, there were 13 families. Every family had to have one person working outside, at least one person. Most of them had two people working outside, but there were a couple of men who stayed on the commune property to run, to manage the, um, the project, which was building our own homes. So, and a lot of these people had some pretty, um, some pretty high paying positions for that time period. Like a lot of them, if, when I calculate their salaries out, it's like 100,000, 120,000. Which is a lot of money for them for that time. Yeah. But like almost every penny of it was invested into the project. So there was a monthly payment of $300 towards the building project. Then there was the minimum 15% required tithe from everybody, children, adults, everybody. Yeah. How do children pay a tithe? If you're working, if you have money, like if you get an allowance, you get $10 from your mom and dad as a kid. You tithe fifteen percent of it to the show, and they kept records of it. I had records of it. I'm like, holy shit! I gave them a lot of money, plus all the hours that I worked on the property. I figured they owed my family, my brothers and sister, and I about fifty two thousand dollars in labor for those years that we worked there. But then we also paid for incidentals, like kerosene. They would buy it in big, huge, fifty gallon drums, and if we paid, you know, a buck fifty for per gallon or per whatever it was, then we were charged $2.10. So they would jack up the price. We paid $20 a week per adult for food. <clears throat> children under a certain age were free, but children like to that certain age were 20 bucks. So I think there were maybe seven or eight children who were not contributing to the food um, pot. So there was that. And then, like I said, all the incidentals, phone calls, um, things that were just charged to the people to maintain the property. Then there were salaries. Lou and his wife had a salary and one of the pastors and then one of the men that they kept on the property, they all had salaries. So there were four salaries that had to be taken care of. So all this money had to come in from people. I calculated my mother's monthly income from when she arrived there in 1977 till 1980 and 84, when she left and every week she had about 12 to 15 bucks left after everything she put in the commune to survive on. So my siblings never had new clothes. My mother didn't have a car the whole time she lived there. And they lived in a tent from 1977 to 1984. Unreal. Yeah, she never had her home built. They never even started. They never even cleared the property for her home. And I was looking at the maps of the property, and there weren't enough lots for all of the people who were putting their money in. So I don't, I don't, I wasn't privy to some of those conversations. So I do not know what the intent was if my mother was going to live with another family in their home. But there were some people who were never going to have their own homes and putting money in every month and investing with the promise that they would have a home. They never, I mean, how do you not pay attention to the fact that there are not, you know, 18 lots for the amount of people who actually need a home? Brainwashing. Yeah. Have you been back to the property? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 
it's there, you know, of course the commune is gone. There's two people who still live in the original homes that were built that were part of the original crew that came out. Um, and so it's all grown up and you can't see the tent sites. Um, I've been out there, I don't know, maybe a dozen times just to go and see it over the years. It seems like you should be able to go back and claim and sell your land and get some uh, restitution. That would be nice. Have you looked into that? Um, Or even a class action lawsuit against the association to get your restitution back? Most of those people aren't even involved with with the original group, just two of them. So there's 13 homes. That's all you need, though. I mean, 11, yeah, 11 of them are sold. And I've been monitoring the sales over the years. We worked every moment of our life. The kids, we kids worked on that property from sunup to sundown. Most days that we weren't in school, every Saturday, we could not plan anything else. We had to work on the property and then after school. So we were like their workforce because Lou decided that, we could do the work ourselves. And meaning we, like the royal we, he didn't do anything but sit on his fat ass and draw horrible home drawings. <laughs> so, um, like I said before, like that, you know, 50 some odd thousand dollars that they owe our family for the labor that they saved. We're just supposed to be grateful for having the opportunity. But that's what I'm saying. Retroactively, I feel like if you went and talked to a lawyer that that's, I, I feel like somewhere in there is the ability for you to at least get, ret- re- I keep saying, I want to say retribution because that's Freudian slip, but rest restitution, you know? Yeah. It seems well, like you should be entitled to that. Um, I would, I mean, I would just ask the question. Yeah. You know, I really haven't pursued it and only because um, I feel like when when I finish my book and it gets published, it's going to draw attention to the fact that these people purchased homes without being informed of how they were built. We cleared the land. We dug the foundations. I showed you those pictures. We hauled, we, we used one small little cement mixer to pour all those foundations. So we were working our asses off like grown men. I mean, small children, 10 years old, shoveling rock and stuff. And, and about, I think in 2007, there were these signs at the end of the driveway saying for sale. And I put a sign up that said, um, you might want to vet the information you're given because these homes were built using child labor. And <laughs> Good for you. Huh? Good for you. Yeah, and somebody pulled it down. And it feels almost like a betrayal because there's a girl from high school who I didn't, I mean, she didn't really know me, but she knew about the community. She knew some of us. She's now a realtor selling some of those homes. She sold like three or four of them. One of them was purchased by a guy who was, he's the son of a pastor on the island who Lou like viciously attacked and tried to destroy and this guy buys a house up there. I'm like, what the fuck? What, what are you people thinking? Why? I, I mean, if I were to have one of those homes, I would burn it to the ground. I would put a match to it and watch it burn to the ground. I don't, I don't understand that mentality. And I was talking to a guy one time 
another son of this pastor. I'm trying not to say names because <laughs> he's very, he's very famous. He's a famous Christian author. And he um, was one of our biggest advocates when we left during the lawsuit and the trial, you know, with information and helping us work through that. He said, well, you know, Deb, it's like grass over a battlefield. He goes, you just got to move on. I'm like, yeah, I'm not ready to move on yet. I'm not ready to move on. I think people need to know that those. I I agree. Yeah. I agree. We're built using forced child labor. And not only were we forced to work, if we didn't work, we were punished. We were and our lives were stolen from us. Our childhoods were stolen from us so they could build those homes because that was Lou's agenda. That was his project. That was his focus. He didn't give a crap what we wanted, what we needed, our futures, and even our, you know, our, our school studies. There were times when I had to study from like midnight to two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I have to get at least four hours of sleep for school after working on the property. My grades suffered. And then we would be in trouble because our grades suffered. It's like, how, what's wrong with you? What are you doing wrong? Why are you not, why are you not excelling in school? Why are you not getting straight A's? It's like, we're not getting straight A's because we're working on this property. We don't have our parents advocating for us. You're using us like, and I hate the word slaves, but it is what it is. We were basically slaves forced to work on the property. It wouldn't have made any difference if they had chained us there or not. We were chained to that place. Was God in the equation during all of this or was Lou the God in the equation? So They talked a lot about God, just like they talked about love. They said, we love everybody, but they never said, I love you. So they talked about it. They talked about scriptures and they would read scriptures. And then it was, it it was talked about and um, reflected upon from the point of view of their twisted relationship with Lou. Because Lou is the one who, who created the dogma. Lou was the teacher, the great teacher, you know, their, their guru, so to speak, who, um, you know, instilled these ideologies in them that they thought were Christian. Um, And, you know, it's, it's kind of insidious too. When, when most people go to a church, if I were to go to a church down the road, I would expect that that pastor has my best interest at heart. That is why he's there. He cares about people. He wants to spread the gospel, um, help, help people have, you know, more fulfilled and happy lives. And that's what you expect when you go to a church. So when you go to a church and there's somebody who piles on top of that, this love bombing and these, these ideologies, like we'll help you with anything you need. You're never going to need again. You're never going to want again. You're never going to be alone again. That feels good. And that's enticing. And it's so criminal. It's just a criminal behavior. It's predatory. Absolutely. And gaslighting as well. Do you have a a spiritual practice now? Are you religious or do you believe in a higher power? No, I don't. None of that. I just don't. I don't have space for it in my life. I don't have room for it. Um, And I do believe that spirituality is can be separate from religion. I don't think that the two are, you know, are bound together. I agree with that forever. Um, I believe that people like there was one of your episodes where you're talking about people praying, like a 
bunch of people praying and they changed the mm-hmm. energy. Wait, that was the one with uh, Shirley. Yeah. Episode was it with Shirley? Shirley? Okay. I think so. I think yeah. it was that one. That's I don't know. There's been a couple where we've discussed it with people who have been on that could feel something. I think it was Shirley talking about seeing a golden light, unless I'm mixing her up with another episode. I thought it was a guy who was talking. It, you know what? And now that I'm saying it out loud, I think you're right. It was a guy. Um, I was trying to find the episode again because I'm like, I, it was I, recent, right? It was a more recent one. I thought so I thought it was maybe just before her or maybe a couple, but I do believe in that power. I believe in the power of like energy lip humans coming together and having this, this, um, this intent for good and for helping people and for inflicting health. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. It's inflicting. <laughs> Are both your parents still alive? Um, No, my dad passed away about 10 years ago. And um, I don't have anything to do with my mom. It's, I mean, there's so much history. And when she left, when she finally escaped the commune, we tried to heal our relationship, but she would not ever own what happened. When I would try and talk to her about it, she's like, I just, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to, I'm like, mom, you need to talk about that. Not only do you need to talk about that, you need to give us some freedom. You need to say that was fucked up. I'm so sorry. I did that to you, but she could never do that. Well, good for you. Good for you for standing up for yourself. Yeah. And when you're call me cold because I did that, but no, I think it's called self-preservation. I, I think that you owe it to yourself to do what is best for you. And that keeps you healthy and happy and feeling loved and supported. Uh-huh. When your father had passed away, had you been in contact? Yes. Yeah. So when he disappeared from our lives, and that was painful for me. Um, it was years and years. Like he was just gone. I didn't know where he was. I wanted to find him. I knew he'd help us. Um, I hoped he'd help us get out of the, the commune. And when I finally escaped, um, I was out for like a year. And then all of a sudden, I was sucked back into this drama of a trial and these accusations and things that were going on. And in the midst of that, I sued the commune. So my face was on the front page of the Seattle PI in like 1983. Wait, did Luke stand trial for all these abuses? No. No. Okay. Um, But during this whole time, my dad was living in Bellevue with my aunt and uncle. It's just, you know. Just right there. Right there, right there. And they're reading these articles and they see my face on the paper and none of them reach out to me. For those who don't know who are listening, Bellevue is just a ferry ride across to, you know, Seattle and then a 20 minute drive to Bellevue. Right. Yeah. So my, my dad was aware of what was going on. Wow. Like come to our rescue. So that was really painful. And I tried to like reach out to them and kind of get involved with my dad's family again. And it was just, it it just was not going to work. Are you close with your siblings now? No, no. The whole family is splintered. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. I mean, it, and it's difficult for other people. Like my youngest brother is married and she's like, I don't understand your family. I don't understand this disconnect. I don't understand that you don't talk to each other. And I'm the only one that's vocal about the commune. And my my brothers are like you need to shut your mouth pretty much like well men don't deal with trauma the same way women deal with trauma unfortunately 
I mean, that's a blanket statement, but in the, as a generalization, I think it holds up. <laughs> because they're expected to like man up. and Yeah, they, they are told that they have to suck it up and push it down, which is horrific. And yeah, they had their own experiences that, that you know, in their time to work through. But mm-hmm. drama is a motherfucker and it rears its head in lots of different ways. The aftermath of, of it. And you know, it's interesting. I never internalized the fact that Lou had been grooming me, like seriously grooming me, like asking me to have skin time with him, which was just disgusting to me. And wanting you to be, he wanted to be your first, all that. Yeah. Oh, and I think I said something like, I will do you. What he said was, I'll take care of you. When we were sitting at the table, it wasn't I'll, I'll do you before these boys will. I'll take care of you before any of these boys have their way with you. It was basically what he was saying. And I, that's when I was like, I don't know if he's saying he's going to kill me or if he's going to rape me. And a lot of people, like a, a woman that was really helpful to us and helped my brothers, she, her, um, her guess was that Lou wasn't, was a, that he had ED, like he was, what's that word? Um, Erectile dysfunction. Yeah, but that he was... Um, impotent. Couldn't, yeah, impotent. And that's why he created this whole crazy shit show world of nobody can have sex. If I can't have sex, nobody can have sex. If I can't do this, nobody can do this. If, I'm, if I am a pervert, then everybody's a pervert. It's usually a root cause for things, yeah. Or some people are just sick, you know? Yeah. He obviously had mental illness. Yeah, I think he did looking back, but at the time I didn't see it. He comes up, he came across very, um, very much in control of himself and his behavior and his thoughts and his, you know. Well, also you were a child, so it wasn't on you to see it. Yeah. You were supposed to be cared for and protected by the people called your parents. Have you gone to therapy and, and dealt with stuff that way? I have. Um, I'm just recently learning, though, that there's a difference between just, you know, therapy to help you deal with certain traumas in life and then therapies to help you deal with this cultic kind of abuse that just hits you nonstop 24, seven hours a day, like it did in my life. And I think it was difficult for me to, to convey that to my therapist. And I always felt like when I had, you know, when I found a new therapist, when I'd move, or when I just decided it was time to move on, I had to educate them. Like, okay, here's, and you know, I had to go into this whole background and they would just sit there and go, oh my God. Oh, wow. Tell me more. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I need. I need you to help me determine if the way that I am behaving is, is fucked up. And I'm, you know, and I, I need to, I need to get healthy. I need to get to the other side of this. And there's that learning curve with therapists even. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but it just is what it is. And now there are more, more people out there and aware of this cultic trauma. Yeah. There are specialty therapists who work with people that have been in cults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never been able to find, I've never been able to work with anybody like that. It's been 40 years for me and I've had therapy and I've, you know, worked through a lot of this and I'm pretty vocal. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to hide much. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it. Which probably helps a lot for you to heal. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And also finding this community of people, like it was only March last year or March this year that I started my Instagram page and started getting involved with and finding other cult survivors. Until that point, I didn't know anybody else who had been in a cult and who experienced the same things. It's very prevalent. And I, I say that from the perspective of someone who has interviewed a dozen people already who have been in cults of some shape or form. Mm-hmm. It's so prevalent. It's yeah. this, it's a cancer that is not talked about. Exactly. And, and my focus is, you know, I mean, I get it that, you know, these adults come out and they've also been victims and they're, they need to heal and they, you know, their voices need to be heard too. My focus is on kids who suffered through these traumas and at the level that adults, some adults could not survive. Like I doubt that very many adults could survive some of the stuff that we endured in that cult as kids. And I haven't even gone into, you know, I've just hit the tip of the iceberg of the shit that we endured. Um, a lot of those people were came out mentally imbalanced. And we sure. are supposed to figure out how to go out into society and be productive citizens. And, and we can't. I mean, there's one girl who, when she left at 14, her mother got her an apartment so she could entertain men. And she became a meth addict and she was in prison. And just now in the past like six or seven years has been able to heal and find some calm in her life and some peace from that. She was in your cult. Mm -hmm. And because she had been used, she had been pimped to the, into situations out of that Lou was putting her in. Then when she got out of the cult, she continued on the, the work of this, what, what Lou was doing was facilitating sex work, laying naked next to an adult when you're a young girl, or even as an adult woman, I mean, that's, there's the sexual component to that. He can call it all he wanted, but he was pimping out you. Pretty much. Yes, exactly. So he wasn't doing it to the younger girls. So, but what, by the time I left, he wasn't so much focused on like the skin time People were doing that on their own. So he wasn't facilitating that anymore. He was focused on the project, building these homes, being the big hero there, controlling people's lives, like telling us how many squares of toilet paper we could use, um, and focused on ensuring that his agenda was fulfilled. So they had already taken the skin time stuff and ran with it. They were doing it. Yeah. Yeah understand that a sexual predator doesn't have to be in the presence of the act in order to feel the sexual gratification of the act. For example, rapists uh, may, or serial killers for that matter, may take a a trinket or generally will take a trinket or something that will remind them of the, the victim so they can relive it in their mind. They don't have to be present to it anymore. It's already in them ingrained in their mind the power surge and they can relive it that way i think bundy would visit places where victims were buried and sexually gratify himself and uh there were there's been others as well you don't have to be in the physical proximity it's like a it's like a sexual pyramid scheme right sexual predator pyramid oh my god exactly 
wow. Oh my, so wow. You were blowing my freaking mind. <laughs> Cause this is the kind of stuff that I've never, I mean, I focus on so many other things. It's like, I've never, I've never seen it this way. And it was a sex cult. It was so very much, yes, a sex cult. Holy shit. Because I tell people all the time, like, I don't, I don't really like to focus on the sex cult part of it. Like with my, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's horrifying. It's horrible. And I'm, I'm only laughing out of like sheer empathy for how awful as you're laughing, because how else do you handle such darkness? Right. Other than be like, it's so out of the realm of, of normal behavior that it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Except for the problem is, is it's not out of the realm of human behavior because it does happen right. all the freaking time. Yeah. Yes. So that's why when I asked you about therapy, and, and I do think there is a value to finding a, a therapist who specializes in cults and more specifically cults that have a sexual component, yes. because that's a whole lot of layers, a whole lot of layers. I can't even imagine how, because you said you have kids and stuff, like how you, the, the, the level of strength that you have and the fortitude that you have is impressive. The fact that you were able to then go into a relationship and, you know, have children and all this stuff is a testament to how strong you are. Really? I think so. My God, all that trauma, all that experience. And yet you were still willing and able to move forward and create this life for yourself and have children. And that's impressive. Thank you. Thanks. I, I can I tell you're a mouthy broad. I like it. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that I did my, my self therapy was when I left the cult, I made a decision, like a conscious decision. I will not use language that they used in the cult. I will not think like they thought in the cult and everything they did, I will do the opposite. So I was so promiscuous. I was like, Hey dude, you want to bang? Come on, let's go do it right now. Hey, you, you want to bang? Let's go do it. No touching, no skin time. We're just going to do it. And I'm like, I have to do this because I'm going to reprogram my brain from the cult thing to something different. And I didn't even know what it was. It makes complete sense. And in fact, it's not an uncommon behavior to leave traumatic situations. And your body didn't belong to you. Exactly. Right? For 19 years, your body belonged to Lou for, for you know, and the, and the cult and the people there. And so a reaction to that, it's logical that you would be like, nope, this is my body. I'm going to do with it, whatever. It's the pendulum swing, right? You were so far one way that you swung all the way to the other side. And, and as you're there, eventually, in theory, you'd be able to reach an equilibrium in the middle. I would hope that's what I hoped. Yeah. Yeah. Not work out that way. Well, you're also a kid still, not only were you a kid, but you were probably much younger emotionally because you'd had no chance to develop your, your emotional bandwidth and your ego and your id and all that stuff, you know, you never got that opportunity. So here you are at 19, a supposed adult. Great. I can vote, but I have had zero life experience. 
Yeah. Zero life experience. And I, I know even as, as like recently my, I don't feel mentally um, mature. Does that make sense? Like, I know I'm getting there, but when I first left the commune, even like my brothers and I talk about this, the first thing we did was we laid about in bed on Saturday and watched cartoons all day in our pajamas. Yeah. And my friends are like, what the hell's wrong with you? Get up. Let's go do something. Let's go. And I'm like, nope, I'm laying in bed in my pajamas and I'm watching Bugs Bunny all day. Yeah. And everyone's entitled to their experience of, of figuring out how to make themselves feel better or whatever that means. And some people aren't ready for therapy and some people, you know, what, whatever it is, they have the right to figure that out for themselves. Right. So as they're not hurting someone else to try and work it out, you know, that's the whole other ball of wax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how old are you now? 59. 59. Four years. Yeah. Do you feel you're still on that road to recovery that you're, it's a, it's a never ending process, of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I do. Um, I, and Initially, when I first left, I didn't trust anything that I thought because I didn't know if it was normal. Hmm. Like, is that normal? Is that a normal way to think? And I would like, I would watch other people. I would never ask the questions, but I would watch and I would like try things on like, hey, um, can I lay in bed with you guys? And they'd be like, no. And I'm like, okay, that's not normal. Okay, good. Let's move on here. Hey, can I... um, can I, you know, do this? And they'd be like, oh yeah, sure. I'm like, okay, that's normal. Put that in the normal bucket. You know, and I did these things and I, I navigated life that way. And it was exhausting, like so exhausting at times. I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm like, but wait a minute. They tell me what I want to do is bad and wrong. So I'd be like these total mind like mess that I was in, like know how to navigate that. And, um, I was telling a friend of mine, another girl who got out of the commune um, when she was, she was born into it. And she's like, I did the same thing. I did the same thing. I didn't, she says, I didn't even know how to order food at a restaurant. And I would look, look at it and I go, Hmm, I, I feel like having hamburgers. What do you feel like having? And they would say steak and she'd go, Oh yeah, I'll have steak too. So we couldn't even order food from a freaking restaurant because we didn't know. We didn't understand that we could want something for ourselves. Yeah. If I wanted fish, but Lou didn't want fish, I couldn't have fish because that was wrong. So think about how far you have come. I mean, it's, it's incredible. You are a survivor. You are sitting here telling me this story that is horrific, but it's also a story of triumph, yeah. you know, and, and fortitude and, your sassy ass stood up to it. You know what I mean? Like that you were give that girl credit to that little girl who was constantly in fisticuffs with Lou and the whole situation. That girl knew something and had for that to you, you know, that's impressive. And that's something to really honor about yourself. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, I, I kind of I, I kind of got back to that kid because they broke me. They did break me. And I always thought they're not going to break me. I'm strong. I'm, I'm a bad bitch. They're not they're never going to break me. I'm never going to buy into this. But they did. I would argue that point and say, I know what you're saying. But when you said you got along to get along, that's not being broken. That's 
understanding that survival was Im- imperative to to your survival. Mm-hmm. Don't confuse the two. Right. It's not breaking you. It's you understanding. I have to do this thing to survive. That's strength. That's not victimhood. That's strength. Hmm. Okay. I I honor that ab- about you because you understood that you had the wherewithal to be like, if I'm going to get the fuck out of here, <laughs> I have to convince these people that I'm on board when you said for yourself, I wasn't on board. And even, even if you had eventually gotten to be on board, even if they had manipulated you, if Lou's, you know, voodoo had manipulated you, it's still, it's not your fault. Yeah. Yeah. None of it's your fault. Right. And I used to feel guilty because I lied to them. I was duplicitous to survive. And I used to just, that used to just make me feel so guilty. And I'm like, the minute I leave here, I'm never lying about another thing in my whole life. I don't care who it is. They're going to hate me or not. And um, do you still feel guilty? Um, not so much anymore. No, okay. good, good, no but I did. I mean, that, that was, I would have sleepless nights yeah. over how I lied to them. And I'm like, yeah, they're right. I am a liar. But the, the, the problem with the duplicitous behavior was that when I was being honest, they were calling me a liar. When I was lying, they were praising me. You know, it was like, what have I done to myself? Have I, have I screwed with myself to a point where I can't, I can't see reality? That's what scared me. And that's what I would talk to therapists about. And my first therapist, I, I'm like, no, I can't. I just can't do this. My second just wanted to medicate me. I'm like, I don't need to be medicated through this. I need to feel it because the minute I stop feeling it, it, I don't know if I'll have control over reality. You know, it was like, that's how I was at that point. Um, so it was, it was difficult to find people. And I think, I think for me, the most healing thing is just talking about it, just putting it out there. And I remember, so I, I referenced, um, I filed a lawsuit against them and the way that that came about was several boys from the commune were accused of molesting every child in the commune. So there was this criminal trial that took place and I was a witness for the defense and I was talking to one of these attorneys and he's like, I'm telling him stuff. And he's like, okay, whoa, okay, stop right here. Stop. I need you to tell me everything that happened. He was like the first person not even my therapist that I told everything to. I told him about the skin time and the special groups. And he goes, oh my God, we need to file a lawsuit right now. Right now, because it's been two years since you made this. So this was like 83, mid to late 83. Because we need to file a lawsuit right now because we need to get this on record, not only for to, to show what this place was for this criminal trial, but to get you something because you need therapy. He's like, you need therapy. You need money for therapy. It's going to cost you a lot of money. <laughs> and he goes, and you need an education. We're going to make, we're going to take care of your education. We're going to take care of your health and he's going to pay for it. <laughs> so I filed a lawsuit and it was terrifying because I, I had no idea what that meant. And I had to go in for a deposition with Lou in the room. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. And then, um, so kind of a, a, a happy ending to the story is in 2004, a friend, a friend um, 
her father was in the commune. He passed away. So I went back there for his funeral and we had to put some chairs back in this building in the commune. And there were all these file cabinets full of documents. And I just started rifling through them. Just hmm, what's in here? What's in here? It's wide open, right? <laughs> so I'm looking through these file cabinets and I find a file with my name on it. And I pull it out and it's Lou's handwritten responses to my deposition. And I'm reading through this stuff and I still have it. I'm using a lot of that for my book. And I'm like, God damn, this guy was literally wanted to destroy me. This man who said he loved me and cared about my family was actually trying to destroy me. And I found other documents too in there about uh, that, like documents that they wrote about this special group and the skin time and the therapies that it was, because he was going to put this in a book. So it was nice and it was <laughs> right. Hello world. Here's Lou's book on how to get rid of your sexuality. By, molest by molesting children and, right? and adults. Yeah. So, I mean, the man was so delusional. He was, a, he was psychotic. Well, clearly a narcissist. Uh, yeah. Clearly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of stuff going on. Malignant narcissism springs to mind. Yeah. Wowzer. Did you win the lawsuit, I hope? No. So actually, so in the midst of the trial, I was I got pregnant with my son. So I was living with my boyfriend. Um, I got pregnant. And I'm like, I was sick. I was so sick. I was in the hospital for about a week. Um, I went back to live with a friend for a while and just kind of forgot about it. And during that time, my mom left the commune with my brother and sister. And that's, that was my motivation for filing the lawsuit. Wanted to get my siblings out. And I thought, if, if I bring this to the attention of King County and to child services and all these people, they're going to see, they're going to at least investigate and see what's going on. And I at least get the kids out. That didn't happen. But my mom did leave. And um, it had been so long since I communicated with my attorney that they just dropped the lawsuit. Um, I think without prejudice. <laughs> so what's going on with the book? Are you writing the book now? I am. I've been writing for quite a while. And it's because as I work through this stuff, the book changes, it change, kind of changes the, the face of it changes. Like when I first wrote this, it was all the trauma and I could not give that to people to read. I could not, I mean, it was like traumatizing people if, if I were to publish something like that. And I don't think anybody would have anyway. So it was like this kind of cathartic cleansing. Sure. And I'm going to step back. My second revision was kind of dry and like boring because I'd taken everything out. And now um, I've been editing for about a year because um, it's not like a huge priority, but I would like to get it published eventually. Um, and I think it's, it's in a pretty good place right now. Okay. Do you have a title? I don't yet. I don't. I don't know what to call it. Um, I come up with all these like stupid ideas sometimes. Um, but one of the one of the underlying themes is when I was in the cult, I was like you said, my body wasn't my own, and I my voice was never heard. Like they consistently shut me down, and that's hard for a big mouth. <laughs> it's hard for somebody who has a lot to say and is pretty vocal. So I think something along the lines of, you know, hear me now or something, or here's my, you know, that's a little too cliche, but you know, something about um, my voice being heard, you know, 
You could title it "Fuck You, Lou, You Motherfucker." <laughs> so I, my my working title is "Surviving Unconditional Love." Oh God, a religious commune or a religious cult. Um, but I don't. I feel like that's a little too um, scholarly sounding. You know, I don't know. I think it's kind of a funny title. I see. I see the humor in it. Yeah. I find humor in a lot of things. Like I do yeah. at this point, even back then, I mean, I laughed. I would sit in groups and laugh at the insanity in front of me. And which probably helped keep you sane. Like I said, sometimes all we can do is laugh in the face of such horror. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, what can you do? The Deb, the, the it's let's talk cults on Instagram where you document and you, you talk about, experiences and also you communicate with other people that have had such experiences correct yes yeah yeah Yeah. what a story yeah i'm truly sorry that you went through that and talking to you now i'm i'm just whatever is the next word past impressed beyond (laughs) impressed at at you well thank you Thank you. You're a hell of a woman. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I want, and it, it's not so much um, for, for me um, because I see people on Instagram who are in so much pain and I know that pain and I just, I just want to reach out to them and just say, hold on, you know, just hold on. You're going to get through it. You're going to be okay. Don't, don't give into it, you know, because there's people who talk about suicide and who talk about, you know, people who have committed suicide. And it's like, God damn those people who did that to you. Those motherfuckers. You know, there's, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Just trust me. If I can get through it, and I'm, I'm right here saying you can make it too. You know, I'm here for you. Being a light in that much darkness, that alone will change the world. Thank you. Thank you for your time and for your story. And, uh, you know, keep kicking ass. You're doing amazing things and you're an incredible human being. And I'm glad you survived. And I think that you are, uh, like I said, a beacon and a light for others to survive and who have survived as well. Well, thank you. I hope so. Thank you. Thanks for letting me spew and, and speak. And <laughs> It was my honor to, to be witness to your story. Thanks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening, everybody. Take care of each other. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Rate and review and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.